Welcome to the Knox Podcast, featuring a sermon from the Knox Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Kenmore, New York. For more information about Knox Church, visit our website at knoxepc.com or email us at office at knoxepc.com. To request prayer, send an email to pastor at knoxepc.com. Uh, let's open our Bibles today to Exodus chapter 2. We're going to be reading verses 23 through 25 today. Okay, on page 55, if you don't want to use your pew Bible there. Let's rise as we read God's holy word this morning. This comes right after the introduction of Moses on his upbringing, his flight to Midian, and how God preserved him. Starting in verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and cried out for help, and their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. May God bless this reading of his word today. Please have a seat. Back when I started becoming a youth pastor in 1999, I quickly realized that it was really important to establish relationships with kids. You can't really minister to them until you have a relationship with them. And you can't have a relationship with somebody if you don't know anything about them. And I don't know if you've ever talked to a teenager lately, but sometimes having a conversation with a teen can be like pulling teeth. You know, how are you doing? Fine. You get the one-word answers, right? How are you? I'm good. Do you like school? Well, either they answer no or they answer yes and they lie. But, you know, th- those weren't really revealing questions. So what I had to do in youth ministry is I came up with a question, kind of an introductory question, to break the ice, to get some, something going with our conversation. So if a new kid came in, I asked him the same question almost every time. I introduced myself and I said, okay, Todd, okay, Julie, what are the two most important things I need to know about you? And usually, like, they stopped and looked at me for a second. But usually they were pretty cool about it. Like, they would think about it. For years, I would watch the gears turn in their head. And I'd say, so what are the two most important things I need to know about you? And some of them would give me lame answers. You know, I, I cheerlead. You know, things that they do in school. I, I play basketball. I play clarinet. Things say, okay. Uh, Sometimes they would tell me about what they did at home or about their personality. But whatever they told me, it was revealing. That's how they saw themselves, the two most important things. And maybe their answer would change if they really thought about it. But I always liked that. It broke the ice. It gave me a little bit of ammunition so that I could come back and start having a conversation and get to know them on a deeper level. Well, it's good to know things about people so you can build up those relationships. But I was thinking this past week, that what if we got to go to God? And right now, ask God to his face, God, what are the most important things I need to know about you? I mean, we have a whole Bible. There's a lot of things, obviously, we need to know about you. But what are the few things, like what are the most important things right now I need to know about you to have a relationship with you? 
I would be very curious what he'd tell me about that. For a good portion, we've been looking at the first couple of chapters in Exodus, and we see during, during most of this, the camera has been down on the human drama. It has been following around as we've looked at the people of God, as they've gone from being at the top, really, of the food chain there in Egypt, cast down into oppression, down into slavery, down into hardship, even down into genocide. And as they're down there, we've also followed the human drama of God working through a little baby who's been born through Moses and the people surrounding him, the princess, his family, his mother, his father, his sister. We followed Moses as he fled through, from Egypt into Midian and met his new family, his father-in-law, his new wife, his son. And so really, we've just been following the people around. And I think the author of Exodus wants us to be wondering in all of this, where is God? Where is God as all of this is happening? We've learned a lot about the chosen people, but what about the God that they serve? Now, I'll admit to you that there's a temptation here. I think there's always a temptation when we read the book of Exodus that we get very excited about the narrative and about the development, about the story. And we get excited. We're like, okay, we have the, the people oppressed, and that's chapter 1 and chapter 2 is a Savior is born, and He's raised up, and that's Moses. And then we want to go right to the next chapter of the saga, which is the burning bush. And I was prepared, brothers and sisters, I was going to give you a sermon on the burning bush today. And as I, I had my notes all laid out, and my wife knew that last week there was an evening, and she just heard me starting to mutter from the other room. And she's like, what's the matter? I said, I'm going to have to rewrite my whole sermon. I'm going to have to rewrite it because God convicted me that there are three verses that I should not skip over. Three really important verses I think we always skip over when we read through Exodus. In fact, you might have stood up one today and gone, why? why are, this sounds like it's such a brief, trivial interlude. It's really just the glue that's binding together these two great, awesome narratives. But rather, what Moses is doing here, the author, is he's taking the camera from the human drama, and now he's bringing it up to the divine response. We know what's happening on the ground level, but what's happening up in heaven? Where is God in all of this? And as he looks at that, as we look at these three verses, I found them more and more stunning the more I studied them, because I found that through these three verses, God is telling us what important things we need to know about him. What do we need to know about the God that Moses followed? The God that the Hebrews followed? The God that we follow? What does he want us to know about him? And for that, God tells us four things. Four actions, really crammed into these three, really crammed into two verses here. Four verbs. And did you catch them? If your Bibles are still open there. Now at this moment of history, these actions of God tell us about who he is. We have these four verbs. God heard, God remembered, God saw, and God knew. I want us to keep these in mind because these four actions are important things that God wants us to know about himself and about how he impacts your life today. Because this isn't just about way back then, although it partially is. It's about today. How does God interact with us today? Let's break it down. First of all, God heard his people. It says God heard them. And at this point, we see that the narrative tells us that there's this transition period. 
you ever thought that there's only one Pharaoh in the book of Egypt, there's actually two. We've already met number one. We think it was Ramses II, possibly. But now he has died. And another Pharaoh, possibly his son, possibly not. It wasn't always a family lineage. But a new king has rose to the throne. And during this transition, the situation for the Hebrews has not gotten any better. They are still enslaved. They are still laboring every day under immense oppression. And through that, verse 23 says, they groaned in their suffering. I want to focus on that word. The Bible never uses words trivially. The word groan here is, there, is that word when you have been hurting so much, you have no more screams in you. You just groan. You groan audibly and you groan with your soul. Every day is just a groan. And I, I don't know if you've ever been at that point in your life, but if you have been, maybe you can identify with the people of Israel as they groan in oppression. And it has been a long time. We have now jumped forward 40 years. 40 years as Moses has been raising a family out in the wilderness. It's been 40 years since he killed the Egyptian and left. And it has been long. Kids who when they were tiny kids were praying on their knees every night, dear God, help mommy and daddy because they're having a really hard time. Now they're middle-aged adults with kids of their own. And they are praying the same prayers. It's been so long that some of the Hebrews here don't actually remember a time before there was slavery. They just grew up in that environment. I mean, we get impatient when God doesn't answer our prayer in about five minutes after we pray it. Imagine praying the same prayer for 40 years, 40 plus years, over and over again. What is that prayer? It's almost the same two words. Deliver us. Deliver us. Deliver us. Where are you? And you cannot be praying that long without wondering if maybe the prayer isn't getting up there. If something's gone wrong and the prayer hasn't gotten to its destination. There was a, a French lady in 2015, elderly lady, and she went to her mailbox one, this one day and she opened it up and she got a letter and she looked at it because it wasn't addressed to her. It was addressed to her great-great-grandfather. This letter was mailed in 1877. And it was mailed from six miles away. And it had gotten, it had fallen down in a crack somewhere. I don't know what happened with the French postal system. But they took that letter 138 years to make six miles to her home. And I think sometimes we feel like that's how our prayers are. That man, I've been, man, God, I've been praying for this for three weeks now. I've been really faithful. And Moses and the Hebrews are like, um, excuse me, 40 years. All right? 40 years, and it's been a rough go. 40 years. And if this is how our prayers work, where we think it's like the, the postal service, where it's going to get lost along the way, rerouted, we need to know that's not how it works. We're not in trouble. The first thing God wants us to tell, him, tell us about Himself here is that He hears us. This is very important. He truly hears each and every one of our prayers. When you pray, you can have a guarantee that your prayer goes exactly where it needs to go every time. The Bible tells us repeatedly that if you love God and you pray according to His will, He hears you. Jeremiah 29 says, Then you will call on Me, and you will come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. 
I, now, maybe I will listen to you if I'm in a good mood, if I'm awake at that hour. I will. 1 Peter 3 writes, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are attentive to our prayers. Attentive. Listening. Waiting. I'm not always attentive to my children. My children sometimes have to say something five or six times to get my attention. If I'm really busy, God is so good, He hears it the first time. And if God really cares enough to hear us, we can be assured that that care extends to action. He is not a customer service department who hears you complaining, well, Mark Wilgens is complaining again, I gotta write that down, file that away. No. He hears you, and he's moved to action. This is how God works. And that is an amazing thing. So God hears you. And as he's hearing you, he does a second thing in parallel. As he's hearing the Egyptians, or the Hebrews, as he's hearing us, he remembers. And what is he remembering here? He's remembering the covenant promises that he made to the people in the past. He made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He remembers these. Now, we talked about this in our covenant class we had not too long ago. And I'll repeat it here. That when we stumble upon this word remembered, we might make a little bit of an error in thinking that God is using this word in the, in the same way we do. When we use the word remember, we use it in the sense of, oh, Bob, you wanted me to help you move this weekend, but I just remembered that I have a root canal that I can't get out of. And so I'm applying what? That I had forgotten, but now I remembered this crucial piece of information that, oh, well, gets me out of helping you move. But that's not what the Bible is saying here. When we see the word remember, it's not saying God forgot and somewhere along the line, he stopped in his tracks. He's like, oh, I just remembered I made a promise to these people. What he's saying here in this moment is that God is holding the memory of his covenant promise in the forefront of his mind, and he has never let it go. He is always keeping the memory of his promise right there, and he has not forgotten. He is not negligent in keeping his word. Back in college, one of my majors, I was an English major, and I took a literature class, and we were assigned to read the book Night by Eli Weisel. Now, have you read Night? Has anybody read Night? It is, a few of you have. It is a hard read. It is, it is an account of a man, a Jewish man who went through the Holocaust, uh, actually went into the death camps, and he talks about, he was a very devout Jewish man, and he talks about his journey of faith in one of the most horrific uh, situations that humanity has ever encountered. And as he's witnessing the atrocities of the death camps, he finds his faith severely shaken. It's a hard, I mean, it's, it's, it's a short book, but it's one of those books that you read two pages and you have to put it down and come back to a little later because it's so heavy. And in one passage, Weisel said that there was a day that the whole camp was called out and they were lined up, and they were forced to watch the Nazis hang a child. And he said he stood there, and he was watching this. And then he said, I heard a man behind me muttering over and over again, where is God? Where is God? Where is God? And when we're in the middle of suffering, when we're in the middle of death around us, when we see the world coming apart, it is a question that should be asked. And it's a question that demands an answer. Where is God? 
If we could just be back in the time of Moses and the Hebrews, and if we could be seeing the pain and the suffering they were going through, the death of their children, we'd be asking the same thing, where is God? And God answers it right here in verse 24. He says, I am here and I remember. I have not forgotten you. I have not forgotten my promises to you. Scott sent me an email the other day. We were talking about God's promises in the Bible. And he sent me an email. I've seen this number before. Apparently a guy sat down on a really boring day and he counted up every promise that God made to his people in the Bible. And he came up with a number. This number was 7,487 promises. I, I, I did a little research into that. I'm like, okay, that's one guy's interpretation. So I did, you know, I've seen different numbers of people trying to count up the number of promises in the Bible. I can tell you, assuredly, it's in the thousands. Thousands of promises God has made to you, and He holds them in the forefront of His mind at all times. That's why we should be scouring the Bible, excited every day to discover anew the promises God has for you. Is there another one? Is there another promise I haven't found yet? Because God remembers. If God remembered back then, God remembered when He sent His Son to the cross for us, God still remembers. And I'm excited about those promises. And I'm excited about those memories. That even in the hardest of hard times, we can go, God remembers. And God will be faithful to that memory. The third thing God wants us to know after that He sees us and He remembers His promises to us. I'm sorry, that He hears us and, and remembers is that He sees us. Now there you go, wow, okay, Pastor Justin, I know you're desperate for material, uh, but that's kind of superfluous, isn't it? They see, well, of course he sees, I mean, if somebody's there in Egypt at the time, they saw. And when we use the word, I saw something, we usually use it in a very trivial way. I saw that TV show. Did you see that TV show last night? I saw it. I saw saw an accident on my way into work today. I saw a, a beautiful sunrise. And we, okay, well, you saw it. So what if God saw his people? What is the author saying here? Well, in the church, I think we take for granted so much, so much that God hears us and sees us that we almost don't even think about it at all. We don't think, we don't ponder how amazing it is that the creator of the universe who sees everything is so fascinated with the people he created in his own image that he pays extra special attention to us. God can watch cute otters be adorable all day long, and he chooses to pay attention to you. I'm nowhere near as cute as an otter, but God sees me. And when God is talking about he sees the Hebrews, he really sees them. He sees every day of their life. He's genuinely interested and invested in their lives. He's not a God who doesn't care. He's not what the theists claim that God wound up the universe and put it into motion and walked away. God still sees. He's actively interested and He cares. He paid attention to the Hebrews because He wholeheartedly loved them. And when you are in Christ, God wholeheartedly loves you. And He is keenly interested in your life. He's very attentive to everything in you, in you, what's going on with you. If you have a trivial concern, it's His concern. If you have a tragedy in your life, it's His tragedy. He sees it. 
There's nothing about you. No quirk. No weird little odd habit that you have that God hasn't seen. God knows it all. He sees you. We have a God who truly knows who we are. And because you're noticed by God, you're someone in his eyes, you have worth. You are worth something. Again, when I worked as a, as a youth pastor, I think that was one of the biggest struggles I ever had with teenagers, is telling them they had worth. Because most of them had been telling themselves, I, don't, I'm not, I'm, I have no worth. I'm nothing. They've been telling themselves that for years. And the only way I could really tell them that is to show them the truth is in the Bible that says God sees you and knows you and loves you and has a plan and a purpose for you. You are not nothing. You are not an accident. You have worth because he sees. Then we get to our last action verb, and it's a little odd. Those last three, verses, those three words here in verse 25 say that God saw the people of Israel and God knew. That final phrase might seem a little redundant. Well, of course, God saw, so God knows, right? He saw something, so he knows about it. He's now informed on the situation. It really wasn't either making a, an abstract claim to omniscience that God knows all things, but rather this verb, yada. In the Hebrew, Yada is often employed in the Bible when the author of whatever text of the Old Testament wants to say that somebody intimately knew somebody else. Usually, if you grew up with the King James, anybody grew up with the King James Version? You probably know this phrase, because anytime you, uh, somebody's making a baby, they uh, use this phrase, and Adam knew Eve, and suddenly out pops a kid, right? So the know there is not, oh, I know you, I, I've, I know you, where, where have we met, right? It's knowing somebody on an intimate level, on the most intimate of intimate levels. And so when the author now uses it here, he is saying God knows his people on the most intimate level possible. He's saying he's intimately evolved, involved with their life so that their pain is his pain. Their struggle is his struggle. He knows. He knows on a level as if it was being done to himself. God makes this claim in the Bible again and again. In the New Testament, Jesus says, whatever you do for the least of these, you do it for me. I don't know why we make that connection, how you make that connection in your head, that when you minister to other people out of love for God and in, in the ministry of God, Jesus takes that personally. Why? Because he knows them. He experiences what they're going through as if he was himself. And we know how this connection was made because it tells us in the New Testament, Hebrews 4, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us because he's been abstract and, and really way out there and looking at us from afar, but rather we have had one who has been tempted in all things, who's lived among us, who's been one of us, who knows us. See, that word know now has so much more significance when we look at God viewing the Egyptians, the Hebrews, and saying, I know what you're going through in Egypt because I feel it. And when we step back now and we look at these four verbs, God heard, God remember, God saw, and God knew, there are two conclusions I want us to take away. 
I think they're inescapable conclusions. First of all, the author wants you to know that things are about to change. That this is, the status quo is not going to stay any longer. That this horrible, degrading, oppressive, murderous regime is not going to stand under the watch of God. That things are going to change because God heard, God saw, God remembered, and God knew. But second, we can conclude in the here and now that our God, the God that we worship, the God that we proclaim every Sunday, is unlike any other God that has ever been shared with all of humanity. Because our God attends to us, and He knows us, and He works through all things for our benefit. I don't know any other religion that claims this. I don't know any other religion that would have the audacity to say that they, we have a God that intimately knows us and has lived among us and now works for us because He loves the church as if it's His own body. But that's our God. And for you, as we look at this, maybe you go, well, this is Bible 101 stuff. Sure, maybe it is. But it should bring us to our knees in awe of the kind of God. And this is what He wants us to know about Himself, that He hears you that he remembers his promises to you, that he sees you, and that he knows you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, what, what else can we say in response to this text other than amen, you are an amazing God. You are incredible. And we don't deserve this. We don't deserve a God like you. And yet, Lord, you have loved us, you have redeemed us, you have set us aside for your plan and your purpose. So Lord, renew our faith, renew our energy and our excitement as we go out this week to be your ambassadors in this world, that we may be patient, kind, gentle, loving, compassionate, gentle. It said gentle twice, we need it. Lord, help us to be these things, all those we meet, to look for those opportunities to share our witness. Lord, to sacrifice, to give of ourselves, to love without restraint. Lord, I pray that this would be the week, Lord, that we would make you proud because we know you and we're excited to serve you. In your name, amen. To reach out to Pastor Justin, email him at pastor at knoxepc.com. Our mailing address is Knox Church, 2595 Elmwood Avenue, Kenmore, New York, 14217. Join us for worship Sundays at 1030 a.m., either at Knox Church or on our live stream at facebook.com forward slash KnoxEPC. Past sermons can be found at KnoxEPC.com forward slash sermons. Thank you for listening.